Well, you have a lot of good things going on here. I appreciate those that uh, play the instruments. I noticed right off this morning that, uh, you know, they are, they are talented people, and uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciated the meal we had today at noon. A little embarrassed that uh, my wife ate so much, but at any rate. Uh, and uh, uh, the introduction, uh, I think that uh, Joel has been very kind. Uh, you, ought to, you ought to see some of the introductions I get. I think, I think uh, I, it took me 20 years to live down one introduction in this brotherhood. Uh, I spoke at the uh, Kaimichi Mountain Men's Meeting. Uh, they said there were 8,000 men there. Uh, I think that crowds are greatly exaggerated. So let's cut it in half, say there were four or five. That is still a big crowd. And the old cowboy preacher that ran that had a Ph.D., but he did better at hiding it than anybody I've ever known. But I want, I want you to hear my introduction to speak before that group of men. He had a gruff voice, and he stood up and he said, Men, I've always said, Pat Merrill is the prettiest and the smartest preacher's wife I've ever met. This here's her husband. And I was on. <laughs> you try to follow one like that. Uh, I still have that throwing up in my face once in a while anymore. So at any rate, I thought I'd tell you another joke. Uh, the one this morning uh, I thought went over fair about the old geezer, but uh, this is one I just picked up. I used this at the North American Christian Convention the week before last, but I halfway read it. Somebody had just given it to me. And you got to tell them, and you got to tell them two or three times before you can make them work. So I'm going to try this out on you. This kindergarten teacher had a little boy come to kindergarten one really cold morning. He was wearing cowboy boots. Before they were halfway through, he had them off and was going around in his stock feet. Came time to go home, and he had to have help putting those boots on again. And she struggled to get him on and twisted and turned and finally got him on, and he stood up and looked down at him, and he said, they're on the wrong feet. She looked and saw that that was true. So she worked up a sweat getting them off and another sweat getting them back on, and he stood up and he said, these are not my boots. <laughs> she wanted to say, why didn't you say that? But she held herself, you know. And she twisted and turned and finally got them off. And he looked at her and he said, they're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them to school today. So she got the boots back on, got him on his coat and said, now where are your mittens? He said, they're stuffed in the toes of my boots. <laughs> if you've ever taught kids, you can kind of see that happening, you know. Uh, I'm glad you laugh. Uh, Remember Fred Allen, the old radio comedian? Fred Allen once said, never, never restrain laughter. If you do, it turns inward on you, causes your hips to spread. And uh, so don't, I better quit while I'm ahead here. I don't. Listen, um, 23rd Psalm. Uh, I use the New International Translation of the Bible, but the 23rd Psalm doesn't sound right unless it comes from the King James Translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. 
leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me lead you in prayer again. Father, may the Holy Spirit work, and may this message be used by you to do good in the hearts of the people that are here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's something unusual psychologists, both Christian and non-Christian, have learned that the 23rd Psalm has a unique ability to bring peace to troubled minds. And they have come up with a little formula. And a lot of preachers have adopted it, used it for years. Someone might come in for counseling, and they are mentally disturbed. Their life is going every which way. And I will say to them, you know, if you went to a doctor and you were ill, he'd write you a prescription. I'm going to write you a prescription, but don't you read it until you get out of this building. And when they get out of the building, they a piece of paper, and the prescription is there. Read the 23rd Psalm five times a day for two weeks. Read it as prescribed. Read it when you first get up in the morning. Or noonday meal, read it in the middle of the afternoon, read it for your evening meal, and read it before retiring to bed. Do this for two weeks. It will change everything about your thought pattern. I can remember a psychiatrist that sent a young, young mom to us. Uh, she was really troubled. He said, uh, go to that church and talk to the preacher. Um, Nothing had worked. We put her on the 23rd Psalm that way for a month and then a scripture mem memory program. And to the last time I heard anything about her, she is a well-adjusted Christian mom. So uh, the guy that wrote, uh, you know, that little motto, a picture is worth a thousand words, evidently never read the 23rd Psalm or the Sermon on the Mount or the eighth chapter of Romans. Words are powerful. Words have the power to change your thinking. Words can disturb you or they can comfort you. And I think next to the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm is probably about the well best known passage of Scripture. You see, it is a description of the character and the activity of God. When you begin to think the thoughts of the 23rd Psalm, you begin to think the thoughts of God, and that's helpful. Now, it's made up of nine phrases. We can't cover them all this evening, but we can cover some of them. And listen closely, because these can have a powerful influence on your life. First of all, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The job of the shepherd of Israel was to lead the sheep. They followed him. His job was to protect them. 
to bring them into shelter and to take them to pasture. I want to tell you, I go in a lot of church buildings, and I go in a lot of children's classrooms, and I think many times we're giving our kids the wrong idea about the shepherd of Israel. I'll go into a classroom, and here's a poster of the shepherd of Israel in a long, flowing white robe standing there with this little thin stick with a crook on it. And that's not him at all. This guy was rough. This guy was so rough that he had to go through a spatial cleansing ceremony to get into the temple to worship. He carried the rod. It was a short club, sometimes studded with metal. He was the expert in throwing it and fighting with it. He carried the staff. Yeah, it had a crook on the end of it, very useful for pulling a man or an animal's legs out from under him. And he also was an expert with the sling. One king wrote that if he could have recruited the shepherds of Israel, he would have already have a well-trained fighting force. You remember when David was brought before Saul? He was going out to attack Goliath. Saul wasn't going to let this kid go until he found out he was a shepherd and had already killed a lion and a bear. Shepherd took a vow. He wasn't going to let anything get to his sheep or goats except over his dead body. And you have to see that this guy was rough. He was tough. Yeah, he took care of his sheep, but he was not at all what we so often picture him to be, and these are the guys that the angels appeared to to announce the birth. But since we see that the Lord is our shepherd, we can see and understand that this shepherd can meet my needs, and that was the job of the shepherd, to meet the needs of the sheep, and he can do that. Uh, I was sitting in my in uh, California one time, and Dr. Schmidt came by. He was one of the elders. He said, Ben, I want to take you to lunch. Well, that's news. I want to take you to lunch at the hospital cafeteria. I didn't know if that's good news or not. End of the month, sometimes that's good. But uh, he said, we're going to hear Jim Conway speak. Well, that was good news. Jim Conway had written the book, Men in Mid-Age Life Crisis, Men in Mid-Life Crisis. It was a bestseller in the 70s and 80s, and a very good book, still a very good book to read today. We went over, and I didn't realize that Jim Conway was a preacher. He had preached at some kind of a Bible church in uh, Urbana, Illinois, and he got so fed up with the ministry that he was just going to, disappear some night. He made his plans. He was going to leave his family. He was going to leave his church. He was going to get up about 2 o'clock in the morning and just disappear off the face of the earth. And he said that night he was lying in bed just thinking about it, and he thought, uh, where am I going to go? And he found himself thinking, I'll never spend another winter on this Illinois prairie again. I'll go someplace where it's I'll go to Florida. And he thought, well, how am I going to make a living? And he thought, uh, 
well, I'll get some kind of a job. Uh, and then he thought, God can take care of me. He always has. And he said, now, guys, I didn't hear the audible voice of God. But he said, in some way, God spoke to me right then. And God said, Jim, if I can take care of you when you're running away, I can certainly take care of you if you stay and do what you should do. And he settled down and went to sleep and didn't leave. And he solved the problems and wrote that book, Men in Midlife Crisis. And he said, we have a shepherd that can meet our needs. We just need to take our needs to him and stick with him. He is sufficient. He can satisfy all our needs. Treasure that thought. Second, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The type of sheep and goats that they have in Israel are early feeders. Uh, they start feeding first thing in the morning. By the middle of the morning, it's hot and they're thirsty. But the shepherd doesn't take them to water immediately. He makes them lie down and rest. And then he takes them to still water. Sheep of that breed do not like to drink out of running water. So again, the shepherd takes care of all their needs, but he makes them be quiet and rest. And you know, all the great men of the Bible had their quiet times. Jesus often took his disciples aside for a quiet time of rest and prayer. The apostle Paul had a quiet time maybe that lasted about seven years. We don't seem to realize that after his conversion, uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem and then he disappears until Barnabas goes to get him. And there could have been seven years in there. What was Paul doing? I think God was giving him a quiet time and he was learning what God wanted him to know about. Moses had a time. Yeah, I think maybe one of the worst sins of our nation is just noise. And every place we go, it's noisy. Uh, Pat and I stopped at a restaurant on the way down here. It was a good restaurant. But uh, couldn't hear yourself think. We couldn't talk to each other. They had to be playing that music, you know. And, uh, we just need quiet. And I think it's almost a sin, a problem that we have in our life today. Be still and know that I am God the Lord says, and let him come out against that clamor and noise. I um, remember the story of uh, Charles Allen. Charles Allen was a minister of the largest Methodist church in the United States. He was an old revivalist. Uh, he, he preached repentance and righteousness. But um, Charles Allen wrote a lot of books, and he was a trainer of hospital chaplains. Charles Allen said one morning he got up, he was going to catch a flight from Houston, Texas, and he was going to fly to one of the New England states where he was to speak for the commencement of university that night. And he did a lot of that kind of speaking. As he was shaving, he said he felt a stab of pain in his back, and that went away. 
he continued shaving and suddenly so hard again he actually collapsed and fell to He thought to maybe I'll stop by the hospital and let one of the doctors check before I get He did that. was take some x-rays. Said the doctor came back and said, Charlie, uh, we're not going to let you catch that plane. You're going to have to cancel out that commencement. He said, what's wrong? Uh, doctor said, uh, well, you know how a balloon would blow out or a tire would blow out? Charlie said, yeah. He said, that's happened to one of your lungs. It's just blowing out. There's a technical name for that. He said, uh, Charlie, you're, you're not going to be able to preach for a while. Charlie said, well, I, I can preach in my own pulpit, can't I, on the weekend? The guy said, no, you're not going to be able to preach all summer. He said, Charlie, I hate to tell you this, you may never be able to preach again. Uh, he was a widower. They put him in a hospital room put a sign up on the door. He was to have absolutely no visitors the first week and said he was there the third day about to go crazy and all of a sudden the door opened and an old country stood in the door and he went, shh. He said, Charles, I'm not even supposed to be here. I just want you to remember one thing. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, closed the door and left. Charlie thought, well, that's a strange hospital call. And uh, suddenly he thought, yeah, maybe it's not so strange after all. I have this time. I have all these books that I have never gotten to read. I have all of these tapes and of sermons I've never gotten to listen to. I'll take advantage and do it. And he did. Within six weeks, though, he was back able to preach at his church. But he said, really, the thing that healed me was the quiet time. And he said, sometimes God forces us to have one. And he made this statement. I wrote it down. He said, sometimes God looks at us, and if we won't take time to look up, he may force us to look up, perhaps by putting us flat on our backs. Stop and think about that. There's a third one. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You could translate that. He always leads me in the right path, and he does. Now, in Israel, as I said, the shepherd leads the sheep. And in the pasture land, there are many trails and paths, but a lot of them just go up and cul-de-sac. They don't go anywhere. And there are some of them that are what they would call the right paths that take the sheep to water or to pasture. Now, sheep are notorious for having poor eyesight. They will often graze within 15 yards of an enemy and not know that that enemy an animal is there. Uh, the shepherd really has to take care of them. And by the way, we're not noted for being too far-sighted, are we? We pretty much live for what's going on right now. We don't take the far look into eternity, not for any length of time very often. Not only that, of all the animals that are domesticated, sheep are about the only ones that have nothing to fight with. They don't have any fangs. 
They don't have any claws. They don't have any horns. And sheep have little sense of direction. You get a dog lost, he'll probably find his way back. Cats will find their way back. Sheep get lost, they just get loster, if there is such a word, and uh, they don't find their way back. They have to have the leadership of a shepherd. So not only that, they are the most gullible of animals, and uh, we're sort of like that. We follow every fad that comes along. Shepherd told one time of leading sheep down a mountain trail, and he said for some reason at one spot on the trail, one of the sheep jumped up in the air. And every sheep that followed did the same thing when they got to that spot on the trail. No reason for it. They just followed what was going on. And we do that. And so you see, when Jesus refers to us as sheep, and when God refers to us as sheep in the Old Testament, it's not a great compliment, folks. We need the shepherd. We need the one who says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So we look at all of this, and the way may be rough and the way may be steep, but there is not a dead end for the one that is following the shepherd. The trail goes someplace. As God led Israel in the wilderness, he'll lead us. David felt the guidance of God. Um, eight or nine years ago, I was uh, doing a seminar on church growth at a church right outside of Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, we finished about oh, 8 o'clock, I guess, and I was going to drive home. It was a Friday night. And um, a preacher came to me and he said, you know, we have, uh, we have fifth quarter at our church on Friday night. I said, fifth quarter? He said, yeah, after the football games at the high school, said the kids in the church, high school kids, all come here. And, and we have a little party for them that lasts till about 11 Friday night. He said, would you speak to the kids? Well, you know, I'm older now, but I was pretty old even then. And I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. I went in. I got along fine with them. Kids are better than we give them credit for when we treat them right, you know. And, and we got along fine. We had a question and answer period, and one boy said, uh, I'd like to know something. Do you ever feel the guidance of God in your life? Do you know the guidance of God? And I said, give me a minute to think that one over. And I gave this answer. Yes, I many times have known and felt the guidance of God. But I said, you know, I recognize it when I look back and remember how it happened more than I recognize it by looking forward. We look back and we see the providence of God and those miracles of providence and how he works things out for us and the guidance of God. Um, Pat and I took a three-week vacation one time the best vacation we ever had, we stayed home. Remember that one? We were in California, and I said, hey, uh, if we were traveling, we'd be eating out. We'll go out for one meal. You, you choose it. We're just going to stay home. We kept the do garage door closed. We 
We drew the blinds of the front windows of the house, and we really rested up. But we also took time to visit some very large churches. Uh, we lived in Orange County, California, and at that time, 10 of the 50 largest churches in the United States were in that county, and they were all very evangelistic churches. I couldn't agree with all of their doctrine, but I certainly could agree with the fact that they were out to get people to know Jesus. We went to one of them one day, one Sunday. Uh, it was in August. Crowd was down. They only had eight or 9,000. And uh, we were walking away, and Pat was looking at the worship folder, and I spoke about what I felt. I said, uh, you know, we have better music than that at our church. And she agreed. And I said, uh, you know, the sermon was good, but there wasn't anything dynamic about it, just a good expository sermon. I said, uh, I preach that good, don't you think? She didn't answer that, just kind of glared at me. But she was walking along reading. And Pat, I can't remember whether it was 25 or 6 or 7 prayer meetings you counted that that church was having that week. There were prayer meetings all the time. There were breakfast prayer meetings. There were noonday prayer meetings. I thought it was interesting. There was a late Friday night prayer meeting and Saturday night prayer meeting for young people that had been out on the date. They could stop by at a prayer meeting. I believe it was at 1030. I'm not, not sure. But I remember what you said. I, I don't understand what brings all these people here. And you said, maybe they're just out praying us. And I've always remembered that. And I think they were. He wants to lead us. And he will, but we better make the, him the shepherd and keep in communication. And one last thing here. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's a very comforting passage of Scripture when someone we love passes away. Or when we think about our own passing away. A very comforting passage of Scripture for the crisis experiences in life. But I had this brought to me in a different way once. We were in Israel. Pat was with me. Sometimes she led tours, and sometimes I went on tours, and sometimes we went together. But this particular one, we were together. I think we had about 50 people, maybe 60 from our church. And we were at the last night in Jerusalem, and we were to go down through Jericho and cross the Jordan River into uh, Ammon or Ammon, and we were to catch a flight home from there. And just as we were getting ready to turn in, our guide came and said, uh, can you have everybody on the bus by 7.30 in the morning? Now, you know, that's really quite a feat. You try to get maybe 60 people breakfast and get them on a bus with all their luggage by 7.30, you've got a job on your hands. 
We got back to our room, and the guide called us, and he said, could you make it at least 30 minutes earlier, preferably 45 minutes earlier? And I wanted to scream and say, hey, I'm going to get out in the middle of the night to get this done anyway. What do you want? He said, I want to show you something that very few tourists ever see. I want to take you to the valley of the shadow of death. I always knew there was such a place. I think the real name for it is a valley of shades. And, and you can go to it now, but this was uh, 20 years ago or more, and it was very difficult to get to. Somewhere down between Jericho and Jerusalem, the bus turned off the road and ran on gravel. And the gravel ended and we ran on grass. And finally, the driver said, I dare not go any further. You'll have to walk. And we walked maybe a half a mile. And there it was, the uh, sun just getting up good. And we looked down into one of the narrowest and steepest valleys I ever saw. And of all things, just as we looked down, a shepherd started through it, leading a flock of goats. And... Um, I turned to the guide and I said, there's one thing I want to know. I said, this was always considered a very dangerous place. He said, yeah, there have been times that you were not allowed to go through it without being accompanied by armed guards. I said, the thing I want to know is I have heard that the best grazing land in the country is on the other end of this valley. He said, that's true, and until we built some roads, the only way you could get to it with a flock of sheep or goats was to go through this valley. There was no other way. And I thought, yea, though we walk through, praise God for the through. We don't go in it and stay. We walk through and out on the other side into something better. That's the way the valley is really, and that's what God is trying to teach us. We go through the shadow of death, and out on the other side into something better, and what a promise is, that is for the Christian. Listen, folks, I can put up with a lot if I know I'm going to get through it. And I think you can put up with a lot if you know you're going to get through it. And no defeat is final with God. If you are God's child being born again into his family, through your faith in Jesus Christ and your acceptance of him, God is going to take you through. And what a promise. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now I'm going to tell you my favorite funeral joke. Yeah, I'd tell this at the funeral of a devout Christian. It isn't really a joke. It's a real happening in Chicago, there is a church called the Moody Memorial Church. For many years, the preacher was a guy named Harry Ironside, Dr. Harry Ironside. Came to this country from Scotland. He wrote about 50 books, commentaries on the Bible. The guy really knew the Bible. One day... Uh, a little delegation of people came to him and said, Dr. Ironside, we want to talk to you. Oh, he said, well, what's the problem? 
said, you know Mrs. So-and-so? And he said, yes, I do. A retired school teacher, I believe, uh, lives by herself and has always been very faithful to the church. They said, well, she is having hardening of the arteries. That's what we used to call it, dementia, you know. And said, uh, she is imagining things. And she imagines that there are two men that wait outside her door all the time. And she imagines that if she goes anywhere, even to buy the market to buy groceries, that those two men follow her. And she's afraid of them. She lives in fear. Can you help her? And they were kind of amazed at his casual attitude. He said, oh, yes, I can help her. Let's go see her. So they went to see the lady, and uh, he asked her about the two men, and she said, uh, certainly you saw them when you came in. And much to the dismay of the group of people, he said, oh, yes, ma'am, I saw them. They're out there. And she said, I'm afraid of them. And he said, sister, I would be surprised. Well, what are you afraid of them for? You shouldn't be afraid of them. She said, I don't know who they are. He said, oh, you know perfectly who they are. She said, Dr. Ironside, I don't. He said, sister, can you quote the 23rd Psalm? She said, of course. And she started out quoting it. And she got down at the end. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he stopped her, and he said, Sister, can't you see that? That's Mr. Goodness, and that's Mr. Mercy. They'll dwell with you all the days of your life, and you'll live in the house of God forever. And they tell me that around Moody Church, people kind of got tired of hearing her talk about Mr. Goodness and Mr. Mercy that was at her door all the time. I tell you, I, I, I really think he took the right track. I really do. Uh, I think that trying to argue with her would have done nothing but intensify the situation. But he was right in a way. If we are Christians, Mr. Goodness and Mr. Mercy are going to be there and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What about this passage of Scripture? It's... Uh, yeah, in Isaiah, someplace it was in Isaiah, 53rd chapter. Uh, what is it, about the sixth verse? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is a prophecy by Isaiah of the coming Christ 800 years before he was born in the flesh. Or uh, what about this one? Now, this is in John 10. Uh, I'll just read a few verses, seventh verse. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I'm the gate for the sheep. Then down the ninth verse, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And then the 11th verse, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the 23rd Psalm. Why don't you make up your mind for the next two weeks, starting tomorrow morning, I will read the 23rd Psalm 
five times a day. I will read it before breakfast. I will read it before my noonday meal. I will read it in the middle of the afternoon. I will read it before my evening meal, and I will read it before I go to bed. And you do that for two weeks. You say, that's a lot of reading. Oh, I know it is, brother. It, uh, it sometimes takes almost 45 seconds to read the 23rd Psalm, and you're so busy. I mean, to give that time to God, why, that would add up to almost five minutes a day that you're given to God's Word. But sacrifice a little, won't you? And try it. And I think it'll change the way you think for the better. I'm going to pray, and then Joe will come. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Scripture and all of the meaning that is in it. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Joe, come on.